Merritt Street, we're building a new morning show where our guiding principle is to always value your time. We'd love for you to join us. Be part of our community. Each morning will be packed full of news, information, advice, and a lot of fun. And we promise we'll never waste your time. I'm Dominique Soxa. I'm Fanchon Stinger. Join us for Morning on Merritt Street. 8 a.m. Eastern, 7 Central. Essential television. Safe consumption sites. In the 30 years they've been in operation around the world, there have been zero overdose deaths. Zero. One of my fears is it constitutes a degree of enabling. Hey, everybody, you are on fill in the blanks. As you know, my guest today is Senator Scott Weiner. He represents District 11, San Francisco and Northern San Mateo County in California. Elected in 2016, Senator Weiner focused extensively on housing, transportation, civil rights, criminal justice reform, clean energy and alleviating poverty. He does this with real passion, I can tell you. I followed his career for a good while now, and the Senator's Bill 57 would have legalized overdose prevention programs, also known as safe consumption sites in San Francisco, Oakland, the city of L.A., and L.A. County, and the bill was vetoed by Governor Newsom in August of this year. Of course, Senator Weiner was extremely disappointed that there was another delay in passing what he considers to be really life-saving legislation. The senator was on the show recently, and I wanted so much to drill deeper on this with him, and he's agreed to join us today. Scott, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I really wanted more time for us to talk when we were together before because I wanted to hear what your core beliefs are about these safe consumption sites. You know that one of my fears is that it constitutes a degree of enabling and that there's not an aggressive enough exit plan. And I also recognize the positives associated with it. Why are you so passionate about this? Sure. And I, I really appreciate you, you know, t- taking uh, so much time to drill down on this because it's an important issue. And people may have opinions, you know, all over the map on, on these issues, but we, we all agree that we're in a crisis, that um, there are people, more and more people who are getting addicted, um, record number of overdose deaths, particularly because fentanyl um, is on the scene. But even before fentanyl, there were way too many overdose deaths from meth, from heroin. And, you know, to, to me, uh, the way I look at this is when you look at people using drugs, people have been using drugs for as long as we've been around, um, including opioids. Uh, and, and we have tried uh, sort of the more uh, tough love, um, you know, trying to really berate people into not using, arresting people, incarcerating people. Um, you know, Nancy Reagan, just say no. I remember that when I was a kid, the just say no campaign. Um, and, and for some people that works, there are some people where the tough love, you know, you know put, put them in jail for a little while and they dry out and that works. But for most people, it doesn't. 
Uh, and there are people who are just addicted and some of them will, uh, if offered treatment, will eventually um, take that treatment and become sober. There are other people who are not going to and, and are just going to continue using. And I, the way I look at it is you got to recognize the reality of where people are with these very, very addictive drugs um, and try to first make sure they don't die. And that's what safe consumption sites are about, first and foremost, making sure people don't die. Um, and then over time, building a relationship with them so they're not just treated like garbage on the streets. They actually are connecting with a social worker, with people who, who actually give a damn, excuse my language, um, about them, and then ultimately try to get them in the recovery. And not everyone will get into recovery, but a lot of them will. And that's my take on it. Well, we're talking about harm reduction, right? This is one way that it's described. And we can agree on a couple of things, I think. Number one, these people are not the enemy. These are our brothers, our sisters, our sons, our daughters, their mothers and fathers of children. These are not monsters. They're not some kind of aberrant people. Before they got onto these drugs and they come to them through a variety of avenues, we need to remember these are human beings. And you and I may not agree about how to get them there, but we both recognize these are human beings that deserve a chance, and we both want them to be sober and start contributing to society again, right? We can agree on that. Right. And we can also agree <clears throat> that not everyone who's addicted is on the streets, right? I, I have a, a friend who he was using meth for many years. He worked in his job the entire time. Uh, and so, and he's now sober, but it took him years to get there and various relapses but he eventually got there. Um, so it, it's, uh, it's, it's not just the most obvious form of addiction that we see on the street. It's so much deeper than that. You've heard me say that this is a disease and that oftentimes it's the sixth or seventh attempt, even with structured rehab, before people actually finally shake this and get right. a lasting sober. This isn't something that you just kind of gut up and do it one day. It's a difficult thing. This is a serious disease. It's subject to relapse. It can be fatal and often is. So I think we see it the same in terms of the gravity of it. But when we talk about this harm reduction and these safe sites, what you're advocating is that people can come to a place that has some support in terms of it's sanitary, there are clean needles, there are people there that are social workers that have an avenue towards rehab or help if they want it. There are people there that if they overdose, they can save them, whereas if they're on the street, they're simply going to die. So there are upsides to doing it the way you're talking about. Right. And, and in addition, the, uh, these sites will almost certainly have um, drug checking equipment. So right now, one of the issues with fentanyl, which is so much more, it's cheaper and more powerful than heroin. There, there are some markets where you can't get heroin anymore. Only fentanyl is available. Um, but and, and, there, and there are people who are intentionally using fentanyl because it is cheaper and more powerful. 
Um, but there are others who are where it's laced um, and they don't know they're it's laced into their heroin or their meth or, or whatever. Um, and so giving them the opportunity to check the drugs so they at least know what they're taking and they're not taking something that they're not that might actually kill them. So you'll give them a test strip so they can see whether it's laced with fentanyl? Yeah, or there, there's actually some newer technology that's even better than test strips now. There's like laser technology. So there's, um, that's a very important, uh, very important service. Right. And y'all actually provide that for them there? Yes. Okay. Or, or we would, we would, if, it were, if we got this bill signed. Yeah, if you got the bill signed, yeah. you would provide that technology for them Yes. There. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street. Essential television. Now, what are the biggest objections that you hear from people in this kind of not-in-my-neighborhood argument, and why do you think the governor vetoed this? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what people think, I'll be honest, and I, I, I think I, I can't remember if I said this when I was on the show, but um, when I first heard about this t- 10 or 12 years ago, uh, I had a negative reaction at first. My initial reaction was like, whoa, whoa, that's that's too much. We can't do that. And then I started reading about it and reading some of the scientific studies and learning more about it. And as I learned about it, it the facts were really clear to me because these are this is not a new idea. This is these have been in operation for decades around the world with a lot of success. And so but I had that same initial reaction. I think uh, there are people who, um, who who have the same reaction that I think you've expressed that this might enable people. Um, I, I understand that perspective. I don't agree with it because these people are already using and they're and they're if they're using behind a dumpster or in a very unsafe setting, um, I don't think it's enabling. They're, they're already determined to do it. Um, the, I, also, some people um, I've heard people say, "Well, we're giving up on them. We're giving up on them. We're by 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 doing this." And my view on that is no, we're giving up on them by letting them die on the sidewalks. This is actually embracing them and showing them love that we want them to survive and, and help them and offer them services. Some people who live in impacted communities, um, uh, like, like, for example, in the Tenderloin or a few other neighborhoods in San Francisco, um, parts of L.A., um, have a perception that this is going to make it, things worse in their neighborhood. Uh, when uh, we actually think that it'll make things better because instead of someone using on the sidewalk, they'll use inside, there will be less syringe litter and so forth. Um, But I understand why people have a reaction. It is in the U.S. a new thing. Uh, And for people who live in impacted communities, um, it is uh, 
it's tough. And I understand why they have that reaction. I've got quote after quote after quote of people talking about walking around the tenderloin, different areas, but certainly there, needles on the street, drug addicts laying in the gutter, defecating on the sidewalks, businesses having to close, et cetera. Is what you're proposing something that's designed to stop that and clean that up? Yes. And first of all, if I could just say the Tenderloin's gotten a lot of national news in the last year. Um, I, I don't live in the Tenderloin, although my colleague in the Assembly who represents this part of San Francisco does live in the Tenderloin, Assembly Member Matt Haney. Um, but I spend a lot of time in the Tenderloin. My office is right at the edge of the Tenderloin. I'm, I'm just there a lot. So I see all of this and experience it with my own eyes, even though I admittedly do not live there. Um, but yes, if, if you think about it, um, if, if someone, instead of shooting up on the street, is able to go inside and, 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 and use drugs there, then that is a benefit to the community. If inside there, there's a restroom that they can use, that is a benefit to the community. If they can not, instead of the needle falling onto the street, there's a needle disposal uh, uh, device, that, that's a benefit uh, to the community. And so the goal here is to improve uh, street conditions, uh, not to have them degenerate because they're, they're problematic now. And I'm not saying this is a silver bullet. I wanna be very clear. There's no such thing. I'm not saying this is gonna solve the problem overnight. But this is one piece of the puzzle uh, where it will have benefits for the individual and for the community. And the one thing I just want to mention to people, there was a focus group done in San Francisco with people who were injecting on the streets because I, I don't inject drugs. But I, when I think about it, I think most people would think, wow, that's a really private thing. Why on earth would anyone want to do that in front of other people? That would seem embarrassing, mortifying. And when they ask them, why are you doing it in public view? The answer is that, well, that way, if I overdose, I won't die. Someone will see me overdosing and save me. Uh, and so that's why a lot of people will choose to go inside because it is more dignified uh, and they know that they will likely not die, almost certainly not die if they overdose in one, in one of these places. Because in the 30 years they've been in operation around the world, there have been zero overdose deaths, zero. We agree that there are areas of San Francisco that have really deteriorated, like the Tenderloin and all, where if you walk down there, you walk through with a camera, it's undeniable that it's gone to the dogs. Agreed? Let me talk about the state of San Francisco, um, because sometimes when people read, you know, read about what's happening in the city, they have a perception that in San Francisco, you can't walk five feet without um, stepping on a needle and human feces. In the, the vast majority of the geography of San Francisco, that's not the case. I am walking through the city all the time. Uh, I don't see needles uh, that frequently. Um, I see a lot more dog poop uh, than human poop because people aren't always great about scooping their the poop, but that's true in every city. Um, there are some, a few areas in the city and the Tenderloin is one of them uh, that are impacted. The Tenderloin has always had major challenges, always. It has gotten worse lately. There's no doubt about it. But in the vast majority of San Francisco, uh, that is not the case. 
I'm not saying we don't have issues. We do. So, um, but this tenderloin has definitely gotten more impacted with drug dealing. And I think we need to address drug dealing. It's not okay uh, for people to be doing that. Um, and there is more open air drug use uh, in that area. Uh, and and that's why we need to reduce that. Absolutely. Why is that? And I know because I've been to San Francisco in recent times, and there are areas of it that are like it's always been the beautiful, stunning views, beautiful. And then I've been to those areas that we're talking about now that I just don't want to be there. Why has it gotten that way? Well, I think um, let's keep in mind that, um, you know, the opioid crisis, which is this, it's also meth, um, but, but the opioid crisis ha- has impacted the whole country. And it, there's been an increase in opioid use and addiction in San Francisco and elsewhere. In most parts of the country, when you're talking about some suburban or rural community, it's not in public. Everything is more spread out. People, housing is more affordable. People are more likely to be housed. Um, it's, it, you're just not seeing it as much. You're seeing some of the impacts, but not seeing the raw, visceral um, images that we see in a place like San Francisco or, or Skid Row in LA. But in urban areas where everything is more concentrated, um, there's less space, um, and the cost of housing is through the roof. It used to be in San Francisco that if you had a disability check, you could afford an SRO, one of the single room occupancy hotels. You can't anymore. And so homelessness has gone up, not just in San Francisco, but everywhere. Uh, And so everything just becomes more visible. And then you put fentanyl on top of it, and that's like pouring lighter fluid on it. So I think those are some of the reasons why things have gotten worse. And you say these safe sites are not going to be the silver bullet that fixes this. And of course, that's true. What is? What is going to fix this for San Francisco? San Francisco and elsewhere, um, we need a lot more access to treatment. It is so hard. And we do a lot of the work I do in legislature is around um, mental health in general. And addiction is sort of a subset of mental health. Access to treatment. If someone needs a, a, a third, you know this, right? This is your, your world. Getting access to a therapist, to a psychiatrist, um, to someone to work with you in recovery is really, really hard, even for people with resources. And if you don't have resources, it's beyond hard. And so we don't provide enough drug addiction uh, treatment in this country. Uh, and we need to make it much easier for people to access treatment. We need to get people into housing. Um, and in California, as you know, it is a deep crisis that we're in and it pushes people onto the streets. Uh, and uh, addiction can cause people to become homeless, but there are also the people who become addicted on the streets. Uh, it is just, you know, living on the streets is one of the most stressful possible environments to be living in. Um, and so we need to do all of these things. Um, and we need to, um, you know, and my view is once we have safe consumption sites, we should be much less tolerant of people using on the streets and be willing to say to people, you know what, there's a place you can use over there and it's going to be clean and better and they'll help you with what you need, but you can't do it here anymore. Um, and so it gives us that opportunity to be, you know, a, li- a little um, more persistent with people to say you can't use drugs in public. We have a place you can go. Well, I couldn't agree with you more that there has to be more readily available and more plentiful sites for people to go 
to access treatment, whether it's inpatient rehab or intensive outpatient programs. But I think if we had 10 times uh, the resources, there's a lot of resistance to treatment. And a lot of people that you offer treatment obviously aren't going to come rushing in the doors right now. So you've got to have some incentive to get people into treatment. And if they've got a choice between, okay, I can go to a safe consumption site and continue to take my drugs. I don't have the concern that I'm going to overdose. That's been taken off the table. So the stakes have lowered. My life is not on the line for overdosing or poisoning myself because they're testing these drugs for me. Or I can go the steeper hill and go into rehab. What's their incentive to take the steeper hill and go into rehab? Well, the in some ways, the steepest hill is to be using in a filthy street environment and where you're risking your life every time you shoot up. And so I, I in terms of just the enabling, um, you know, this idea that it enables, I just fundamentally disagree with it because if you think about it, if they're just using on the streets, the risks are so high of dying, of getting HIV hepatitis, of getting an infection um, with a dirty needle. It, it, it's it, That is a major incentive for people not to do it, and yet they still do it. So I don't think that having one of these sites is going to make it so that, oh, no, now it's really easy uh, to use. They were doing it when it was really, 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 really hard. But if you look at the track record of these sites around the world, in Europe, Canada, Australia, I learned recently that Ukraine has <laughs> safe consumption sites. This is like a normal thing in Europe. Um, they have a good track record of getting people into treatment. Not, not everyone. Uh, and it doesn't always happen right away. People have to be ready. But they have a track record of getting people in, into treatment. If you think about it, someone who's on the street being treated like human garbage, people ignore them, they become invisible. If they're going into a site every day or a few times a week or however often they're doing it, they're now have people who see them, who talk to them, who acknowledge that they are human beings. They build those relationships. And over time, it, it can help facilitate that person getting into treatment because they now have a degree of trust with the people that they're interacting with at these sites. So you think relationship building is going to do it? Again, not a silver bullet, but right. it, it, re it really matters. If you think about it, the, pe the people in all of our lives who have struggled with addiction, right? It makes all the difference in the world when you have people who are persistent about saying, I want to help you, I want to help you. Again, it, doesn't, it, might, it might, have, might take a day or a week or, or a year to get into that person's psyche and get them to the point where they're willing to do it. But if, if they're all alone and, and no one has that relationship with them, it makes it less likely that they'll go into treatment. If they come to these sites, is there a limit? to how often they can come, if they come every day for a month, six months? Is there some point when you say, hey, you either got to get into treatment or we're closing the door to you? No, I mean, it's low barrier. They, I don't think there is a, a limit. I mean, every site could do it differently, right? They all, there's flexibility in there and there could be different, you know, approaches. Uh, but generally, no, you, you don't do that. You, you, meet, you meet people where they are. You don't, you don't try to coerce them into treatment that um, typically doesn't work. Um, but the, the track record is that most people, not everyone, but most will eventually go into treatment. They have to be ready. You can coerce someone into treatment and say, and badger them into treatment. They go into treatment. 
maybe it'll maybe it'll work, but it probably won't, and they'll probably relapse. They have to be ready uh, to to get sober. Were you surprised that Governor Newsom vetoed this? Did you think you had his support? Well, my, my bill was pending for almost two years, and then before me, for the first two years of the, of Governor Newsom's term, uh, my colleague Senator Susan Eggman had the same bill pending. So we had between the two of us the bill pending for four years. Um, the governor had um, made, made some positive comments publicly when Jerry Brown uh, vetoed a similar bill in 2018 and Governor Newsom was running for governor. He made a statement about disagreeing with with uh, with uh, Governor Brown's veto. He made a statement after he took office that he was, quote, very, very open to it. So we had gotten some pause, not a commitment that he would sign it, but some positive signals. Um, we did not get any negative feedback until very shortly before the bill physically went to his desk. Um, and so at that point, I you know, realized that he, he very well might veto it. But before that, um, you know, he hadn't really said anything about uh, about our bill. And, and again, listen, I, I've known Governor Newsom for 22, 23 years back to when he was a new member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in the late 90s. Uh, and uh, I support him. I consider him a friend. I'm aligned with him on the vast majority of issues. Um, I just really disagree with him on this one. Is there any chance he's going to move his position on this? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, he if he were to change his position, or if he came, or if his you know folks came to us and said, "Hey, if you make X, Y, and Z changes, he'll sign the bill," then we would. Uh, want to reintroduce the bill. But at this point, we haven't gotten that indication. Um, and so, you know, I, I would love for him to change change his perspective or at least let us know what we need to change. But again, we haven't heard anything. You talked about a lot of people that are on drugs are unsheltered or you can be unsheltered and you start using drugs because of the lifestyle that you meet out there. And there are thousands of unsheltered living locations in and around cities in California and across the country. California's got the climate, of course, so I think we've got, what, 53% of the homeless people in the country are in California. Of the unsheltered home, we have 25% of overall homeless um, and 53% of the unsheltered homeless. Yeah, 53% of the unsheltered, but clearly because of the climate, you'd rather be here than somewhere in North Dakota when it gets wintertime. There's that, but also the, the cost of housing here is so extreme compared to most other states. You know, that's why Utah was able to be so successful in, in addressing street homelessness. They were able to really quickly create housing on cheap land, uh, which is much harder in California. Yeah, we don't have cheap land, that's for sure. That's for sure. Yeah. What do you think about this move to eradicate, whether you call it a sweep or move these encampments, outlaw camping in these areas or whatever? Is this inhumane? What do you think about this? What needs to happen to these folks? As long as we have, we have to have somewhere for them to go. Um, if you, you know, when you sweep homeless encampments with nowhere for people to go, they're just going to reemerge somewhere else. And so it's important to have enough shelter, what we call navigation centers, which is sort of moder more modern, more effective, more effective version of uh, shelters. 
um, and, uh, uh, and, and have places for people to be, um, where, where, where there's low barriers to get in there. Um, and then I, I think it's, it's not okay to have tents on sidewalks in these encampments in the middle of neighborhoods when there are places for people to go. And, and, and so, but we have to have, we have to have those options for people for it to be effective. Well, where does that come from? If we've got all of these people now and driving to the studio today, I come down Sunset, Santa Monica Boulevard, Vine, some of the major thoroughfares in this part of LA, both sides of the street are lined with tents. And a lot of them are in front of businesses. I don't know what those people do business-wise because people just simply won't walk through there to go through a business door. I understand these people have to have somewhere to be. I also understand these people have a business that they've got to make a living. Yeah. If they don't stay there, where do they go? Yeah, the the, the tent situation in in L.A., also in San Francisco, it, it's untenable. Uh, and and uh, it, it, it has huge impacts on communities and huge safety uh, issues um, for a variety of reasons, including to the occupants of the tents. And so... Um, that's why, um, but we have to have a place for them to go. And we, we, we don't have enough shelters um, in, in California in general. It's, it's, uh, and there, are, there are cities that refuse to allow shelters. And we have state law that requires them to allow it, but, but it's still a problem. So shelters are not the ultimate solution. The ultimate solution is housing. Um, but we need, absolutely need uh, more shelters um, I don't know that we need to go as far as New York City, which New York City has just a, a massive mega shelter uh, system, which some would say takes money away from permanent housing. But regardless, we do not have enough shelter uh, in California. We need shelter and it needs to be flexible shelter so that people are willing to go there. Uh, and once we have that, and I think, you know, in some parts of the state we do better than others, that I think I think it's not acceptable to have tents on the sidewalk. It's very, very negative for a community. I've pulled over and talk to some of the homeless people and I've had failed attempts and successful attempts. I've pulled over and tried to talk to some of them that are so mentally ill that they can't have a coherent conversation. Some that are so drugged out, they can't have a coherent conversation. I've had some that would seem to make excellent staff. They're sharp. They're focused and they just seem so capable yet so stuck in the situation they're in. I've talked to them about shelters and those that can carry on the conversation, which frankly are a high percentage of them, will tell me, look, going into a shelter is not an option for me because if I do, I can't take my belongings and they'll be gone the next morning. I have a pet. I can't take my pet, and I'm not going to abandon my pet. I have to check in and out every day. So it's not a permanent solution for me or even a temporary situation because they got to be out by like 7 or 8 the next morning. I have to be in by a curfew. So it's just not tenable. I, I'm not going to lose every what little I own or abandon my pet. And it's not safe in there, by the way. So it's you can talk about shelters to me, but 
I'm not going in there is what they tell me. It's just not a good idea. Yeah, and that's uh, it's a really important point. And that's why we have this newer model called navigation centers. And what a navigation center is, you basically, it allows for an entire encampment or a group of people just to bring everything in um, and, and, and be there and not have those same really strict rules that are a incentive for people not to go. And so at these navigation centers, people can bring their dogs, they can bring their belongings, as long as they don't have like, you know, weapons or, right. or something that, you know, um, and they um, can also, instead of being gender segregated, they can go in, you know, with their, your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you don't have to be separated. Um, uh, and they provide various navigation services there. People are interested in trying to pursue housing or addiction treatment, or they have another health problem, or their dog is sick and they need, you know, their, their dog to get veterinary attention. Uh, they provide that. And we have them in San Francisco. They've been very successful. Um, they are a good model to, over time, replace the traditional shelter system because they are much more flexible. You don't have to leave at 7 a.m. Um, and it, it, it creates a better incentive for people to actually take advantage of it. Okay. Are these climate-controlled buildings? Are they warehouses? What are they? They vary. In San Francisco, we have a, a few of them that are outdoors. Uh-huh. So it's a... It's a you know, fe- fenced in fenced area, off, fenced yeah. in area, but it's outdoors. And like, like, for example, we had one in the mission, there was a, um, a parking lot that was going to be developed for housing, but it wasn't going to be for a few years. So they allowed the city leased it, um, at a very low rent for a few years as an outdoor navigation uh, center. Others where it's outdoors, but they built these like smaller structures. So they're indoor spaces. There are some navigation centers where they'll buy an old building that has rooms in it and people get to stay in a room. So it's not permanent housing, but you have your own space. And so it's, it's a very flexible model and it can be in a lot of different kinds of configurations. Now, what's the cost of having somebody in a navigation center as opposed to having them in a temporary housing or housing? I think it depends on where, where you are. San Francisco, is, it's probably going to be a lot cheaper than uh, fairly substantially cheaper than having someone in housing in a lower cost area. It, it might be more, a little bit more, a little bit closer. Um, I don't off the top of my head know the exact current cost of uh, having someone in a navigation center. Um, it can be done. It, it, there's a real cost. I mean, you want, you, it needs to be appropriately staffed. You need to have the right supplies there, um, the right services there. So, um, you know, being able to offer people services. But it's cheaper like It's cheaper than housing. It is cheaper than housing. What I'm trying to think of is if we can come up with a plan that gets people off the sidewalks that keeps the merchants from being in a hardship situation, then it seems to me that that is a viable alternative. And I was reading about your navigation centers. I know there are a couple of places in L.A. that are just that. They're really big, fenced-off areas, and they do have security on the gates. They're not armed, but they're patrols that go through, and they do have radios so they can call for help if they need, for medical help or whatever. Right. And I just got the sense that people felt a lot safer in that environment than they did just out on the street. Yeah. I think they're, they work well. And we've actually made some changes to state law. I, I had a, a legislation I authored that was um, uh, enacted in the law um, to 
make it easier for people to open up these kinds of navigation centers. Um, uh, because there's as always, there's always community resistance, uh, and a lot of times people are mad that people are on the street. But then when you try to create other options, they oppose that too. And so we tried to make it easier and more streamlined to get them open. Yeah, it seems to me that if any gradation that we can do from these people just being out on the street or an underpass, it seems to me that it's a step up for them. It's a step up security-wise, and it's a move towards them holding themselves to a higher standard. For example, in a navigation center, if people can be required to clean up their space, their area, they have different requirements. I just worry that any strategy that we take that doesn't require the person to do everything they can do to be self-sufficient, to live with dignity, if we don't require them to do everything they can do, we're cheating them out of making progress. From a psychological standpoint, that's a big deal to me. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree that we need to try to give people the tools and, of course, encourage people to, um, to try to stabilize. And we, we want them to get healthy. And, and, also, and, I, and I, I've met, you know, one of the great things about San Francisco, I love the city for so many reasons, with all of its challenges, is that people here are, are, are super engaged politically and they, they know who their elected officials are, and uh, including the homeless people. So almost every day, when I, at some point or more than once a day, I'll be walking down the street and a homeless person will come up to me and they'll be like, oh, you're Senator Weiner," And they tell me what they think about everything you talk to them. And I also meet a lot of people who used to be homeless in San Francisco and who now are in supportive housing or some sort of housing and talk to me about how thankful they are that the city, you know, and, uh, provided them with, with, with that hand up. And there are people who still... They, you know, when, when Gavin Newsom was mayor of San Francisco, this was a big priority for him, focusing resources on getting people into permanent supportive housing. And there are still people who come up to me and say, I will vote for Gavin Newsom forever because that guy got me off the street and I am stable today because of him. Uh, and so it, I, I agree that we need to do everything in our power to make that happen. What do you think about law enforcement with regard to shoplifting in the San Francisco area? Because you've gotten a lot of press up there for not prosecuting retail shoplifting. It doesn't seem to be organized crime shoplifting. It seems to be individualized shoplifting, particularly in drugstores and things of that nature. But it doesn't seem to be enforced much at the arrest level. And it seems that a lot of even the misdemeanor citations that are given ultimately get dismissed. Where do you come down on that? Yeah, and the organized the retail theft has been has been a huge issue in a lot of places in San Francisco and other parts of the Bay Area and Southern California too. It's something that has been, in other parts of the country. It's been the big and it's horrible. It's unacceptable, um, and so. Uh, and a lot of it is organized crime. Yes, there are random people who steal a little bit here and there, but there, there, there's a lot of organized retail theft that's happening and, and it needs to be, people need to be arrested. They need to be accountable. Um, they, when it's organized retail theft, they should be uh, uh, prosecuted. Um, for the 
person who's just like down and out and shoplifting for that. Um, there are diversion programs that we can have for people. Not everyone needs to be going to, you know, to jail or prison. Um, but for the, especially for the organized retail theft, it's, uh, it's so damaging. And I, you know, the Walgreens in my neighborhood, I live in the Castro and it's a, it's a big Walgreens open 24 hours a day. Uh, almost every time that I go in there to get everything, I have to have them unlock it for me because, yeah. you know, it just changes the experience for, for everyone. Um, and, you know, a lot of these Walgreens and CVSs, they'll, they'll hire an off-duty police officer to stand there, which has a positive impact, but they shouldn't have to bear that expense. Um, so we do need to make sure that we're holding people accountable, particularly for the organized uh, retail theft. Yeah, I agree with that. Can I have one final question? Yep. It's always the final question that gets you right. <laughs> I talk to a lot of people in politics, state, local, and national. You are uncommonly passionate about the things that you advocate for. What got you onto this path, Scott? You know, I, um, I grew up uh, in southern New Jersey, a Jewish kid, Jewish family, you know, one of two Jews in my class, high school class of 550. Enormous anti-Semitism growing up. And, and I wasn't from a political family, but early on, I, I sort of realized that, um, you know, politics is sort of, a, it's a matter of life and death, right? It's not just, it's not just, you know, am I happy with this or unhappy with that? It's a matter of life and death. And I got really passionate as a teenager and, and my parents never understood why I wanted to volunteer on campaigns, but I, I just started to do it. And over time, you know, as, as a gay man, I came out uh, during college and, um, and got really active in the community. And I, I just, I saw, I, I didn't want to run for office. Um, but I saw over time the intersection between working to make your community better and what happens in politics. And so even though politics can be icky, um, it's, it's not always, you know, pleasant. Um, I, I saw that you can make change and, and, I, and for me, being in office, I don't want to say I have no ego. We all have an ego. But if I were just in office just to have the title and to have people be, be deferential to me um, because I have the word senator before my name, I wouldn't do it. I'd be bored out of my mind. So I, I, have a shel I have a shelf life as an elected official. We have term limits in California. I'm not going to be here forever. And I want to be able to say that I, when I'm done, uh, whether I'm tossed to the curb at some point or I term out or, or whatever, that I've left things a little bit better than when I found them. Uh, and, and the thing that gets me up in the morning is when I, when someone comes up to me on the street and says, because of a bill that you did that got signed into law, so, something is better in my life that like gives me uh, a natural high for weeks. And so that's why I do it. Well, you've got to be seeing the effects of that now with the things you're doing, because you're doing things that affect those that don't have a voice for themselves. It seems like you're spending your time and your energy for those that need it the most. I know it's a tough hill and you work so hard to get a bill passed and then here you come and it gets knocked down. But whether everybody agrees with you or not, they can't disagree with your goal and they can't disagree with the population that you're trying to help. You've made a fan out of me in terms of the things that you're trying to do, and I hope we can stay in touch and talk about this some more. Yeah. Because I think that 
this problem's not going to go away soon, and it's certainly not one-dimensional. <laughs> That's for damn sure. Yeah, no, I, I really appreciate it, and I'm just uh, and thank you for those kind words. And I'm I'm just so appreciative of your in-depth engagement on this because you have a, lo a lot of people uh, tune in for you and listen to you, and and I think you're really giving a lot of people opportunity to really look under the hood and see what's happening here. Well, like you say, under the hood, there's a lot of moving parts to this, and hopefully we can come up with some solutions. I hope we can continue our dialogue, and when you need something, you let me know, and let's continue to talk about this and keep people engaged along the way. So I hope to talk to you soon, and I wish you nothing but the best. Thanks for all your insights today. Thank you, doctor. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thank you. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Have a good one.